It says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at the rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said, be of good cheer. It is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. And when they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran throughout the whole surrounding region and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that he might just touch, they might just touch the hem and that might just touch the, the hem of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. And Father, we pray for the grace and the help of your Holy Spirit this morning as we continue now in our worship. Lord, we want you to be honored and your spirit to have freedom to work what is best in all of our lives. So we just pray for the grace and the help of your Holy Spirit accordingly for each and every one of us as we continue now in our worship. We ask, Lord, speak by your spirit through what you have spoken here in your written word, and we pray that together expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, though obviously part of this earthly life is at times passing through stormy seas, the Lord Jesus nonetheless always remains in control. Let me say that again. Though part of life is passing through stormy seas, the Lord Jesus nonetheless always remains in control. And we see that clearly emphasized in our text today in numerous ways. Jesus having full authority to rule over all things, not just the stormy seas in themselves, he exercises his authority numerous times in this passage for what is best for his people. Now, as we come into our section this morning, remember the prior events we saw Jesus and the disciples had just had their planned on rest interrupted, remember, by the multitudes as they sought to get away for some rest. The multitudes, again, were seeking help and more ministry. And after a long day of ministry, the disciples recommended, remember, sending the people away so they could go and buy food and take care of themselves. Jesus wanting to care for the people and wanting also to further train his disciples for ministry, he did something a little bit different. And if we could, just to refresh ourselves as it transitions into this morning, if you look back with me into verse 37, this is what Jesus recommended instead. He answered, verse 37, you give them something to eat. 
And they said to him, Lord, shall we go and buy 200 denarii, almost a year's worth of wages of bread, and give them something to eat? But Jesus said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish, meager, meager resources, like a lunch, the idea was. And he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed them and broke the loaves and gave to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. Literally, it's glutted stuff, the language is. And then they took up the 12 baskets of fragments and the fish and those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. And of course, that's not incorporating women and children. So Jesus does this, as we saw, amazing miracle of provision, this amazing miracle of multiplication of resources. He meets this overwhelming need of feeding 10 to 12,000 people, possibly. And he does something, Jesus does, by his power that the disciples never could have done in their own strength or resources. And he meets this overwhelming need, and the disciples, like you and I in ministry, they just get to participate in the process. They get to help a little bit. Remember, they weren't the manufacturers. They were just the distributors. They were just passing out the Lord's resources. They were passing on his power and his grace to people. And like a good shepherd that Jesus is, all the weary sheep that he was concerned about were well attended and cared for. Now it's with that backdrop, if you look with me in verse 45, we then read, after that's just happened, immediately, verse 45, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitudes away. So at this point, the Lord Jesus, who is supposed to be always the one who is in control and directing things, never his disciples, no matter who they are in ministry or high, how high-ranking they are in ministry, they are never supposed to be in control. The chief shepherd, the overseer of all of our souls, is who's supposed to be in control. And Jesus now determines that this meeting, particularly in this ministry, needs to be finished. Because we see here in our text, the Lord decides to end things, and by his wisdom, for his reasons, and for his purposes, he takes it upon himself to shut things down and to transition everyone Accordingly, notice in verse 45, it is very clear that Jesus wanted to handle the process of sending away the disciples by himself. First, he made the disciples depart alone, kind of disconnecting them from the situation, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, while clearly, verse 45 says, while he, by himself, sent the multitude away. Notice that though Jesus included his servants in the prior ministry of the feeding of the 5,000, on this occasion, Jesus did not want his disciples to be involved in this particular process. To me, that's a very good reminder by way of application that though Jesus may use me, though Jesus may use us in some situations, he may use us in some things, he may use us in some ways, there are also going to be times that we need to realize it does not automatically mean that Jesus wants to use us in every way. 
or in every situation, or in every circumstance, or in every ministry, and it is an error for us to think that just because the Lord used me in this, he's going to use me in that. Because in one instance, Jesus wanted them involved, and in the very next instance, Jesus clearly did not want to include them. He purposely disconnected them somewhat forcibly, and it's a good reminder that the Lord may include us in certain aspects of what he does. He may allow us to participate at certain times, helping and ministering and serving, but at other times for his reasons, and he knows better than I do, and for his purposes and for his greater wisdom, he may determine at times it's not best for me to be involved in this thing or the next thing. And just because I helped once that I'm not supposed to help the next time and I need to trust the Lord's wisdom and judgment and let the Lord control when to involve me and also let the Lord control when he does not want to involve me or he may not want to involve you. Notice the language is very clear about what Jesus is doing here, that it's somewhat sudden or abrupt and that he's being assertive. Notice it says there in verse 45 that he made immediately, notice, immediately, which means suddenly, abruptly, it happened rather quickly, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. That word made there, even in the language in the Greek, means to compel or to force. So the picture there is that Jesus was using his authority and he was being somewhat assertive in this situation. The language is very strong there, that immediately when the events were done, he compelled them. Again, he took control. He insisted that they would leave. The idea here is he was not leaving them an option. As the leader in the situation, he becomes assertive in the moment. And perhaps, I don't know, maybe there was some reluctance on the disciples' behalf. Maybe they're thinking, Lord, you told us go over to the other side and rest. We came over here. We just did all this ministry. We don't want to take another boat ride. Just send the people away. We like the beach here. We don't want to go to the beach over there. It could have been they were questioning why. Lord, what do you mean you're going to stay here on the shore and you're going to send us away? We always do things together. We're a team. Why are you breaking up the team here? Lord, what's going on? How come you're sending? It could have been that they were proposing questions. I don't know, but what's evident is that Jesus took control because he needs to be in control and even it seems became a bit somewhat firm that he was assertively making them depart. Now, why was that so important for the Lord to do this, to make them leave in this way? Well, John chapter 6, which gives us this account in his gospel, fills in an important detail that kind of helps that. It tells us in John 6 of this same account recorded that when the multitude saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they said, this is truly the prophet come into the world and then it says this, Jesus perceived that the crowds were about to come and take him by force and make him king. Jesus perceived and understood that the Jewish people were excited about his power and these miracles and understand in that time, historically, they wanted a political deliverer. They wanted a king that would come that would throw off the Roman oppression and liberate them from Roman rulership and establish a new kingdom for them that would bring them things like prosperity and political change and peace according to their standards. And so they were yearning for a political deliverer. But remember, 
That was not the purpose for Jesus' first coming. Jesus did not come to be Grandpa Strowman. He didn't come to, it's an, I guess for those who are old enough, you remember that. Jesus didn't come to be the bread king, I should say. He didn't come to bring prosperity. He didn't come to bring political revolution or political change. That's not the reason Jesus came the first time. Jesus came to humbly reveal God, to serve, to suffer, to ultimately sacrifice himself, dying on the cross for our sins and raising again by the power of God and ascending back to the Father's right hand to be a savior for the world. He entered the world the first time to provide salvation for you and I as lost humanity to deliver us from the punishment of sin and the power of sin, which was ruining lives. And Jesus was not going to let someone alter what his true intention was. He wasn't going to let people twist and manipulate what his intended purpose was. The point that was Jesus's recognition here is they had a wrong messianic perception about Jesus at this point in time. And Jesus realizes that, and that's the reason why we read in verse 45, Jesus perceiving that, that immediately he tells the disciples, get in the boat, leave now, and he wants to dismiss the crowds himself to take care of this. Now understand, that means to protect the disciples from this wrong perception spiritually about the Lord it meant that he was pushing them out into the Sea of Galilee and really into the middle of a stormy situation. Jesus was fully aware they were going to encounter a storm. Last time we saw the storm account, another one in Mark chapter 4, we mentioned it's not like Jesus, as creator of heavens and the earth, did not know, didn't check his weather app, that a storm was going to happen on the Sea of Galilee. He knew part of sending them out and across the sea meant that he was going to have to send them through a storm, that they were going to have to journey through these stormy conditions and the struggle that it would bring. Yet, here's the point, folks. It was safer for the disciples, according to Jesus's knowledge and wisdom, to be struggling in the center of God's will in a storm than it was for them to be comfortable and safe and dry back on the shore and get a wrong perception spiritually. And that mattered to Jesus because Jesus knows life isn't about this life. It's about the whole eternal scope of reality. And because Jesus did not want them getting a wrong concept about him or developing a wrong idea or wrong spiritual perceptions and being misled, he was willing to sacrifice their temporal comfort and circumstances and allow them to be navigating through a hard time so that they would not develop a wrong perspective about Jesus, but more than that, they would see Jesus in much clearer ways than they ever would have if they didn't go through the storm. And Jesus, always caring foremost about the spiritual, wants them to realize, look, I am not just the Lord of blessing. I'm the Lord of hardships and storms. I'm the Lord of eternity. And I'm with you in the hard times and the difficult things. And he wanted to make sure that they grasp that. Our Lord is more concerned, folks, about our spiritual understanding 
and our spiritual life and relationship with God and that eternal impact of that than he is about our temporal, earthly journey of comforts. And that's hard to grasp sometimes. And that doesn't mean the Lord's trying to punish us or make us go through hardships, and we can't overly read into that, but understand Jesus always in my life will prioritize the spiritual. He will always choose to prioritize the spiritual because the spiritual lends itself to the eternal. And that's what reality is. And so Jesus here, to guard their minds and their perceptions, literally pushes them out and through this storm. Verse 46 tells us, and when he had then sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. So again, notice scripture shows us here this pattern of Jesus departing from people, disconnecting from routines and activities. Why? To spend time alone communicating again with the heavenly father. We saw back in chapter one where Jesus woke up before daylight because it was busy and chaotic and he went away from his disciples to a solitary place to pray. And here once again, as ministry ends, Jesus departs and he doesn't go catch up with the disciples right away. What he does first is he goes off to another solitary location. It says up on a mountain to an elevated location and he spends time praying and talking to the father. And the scripture makes it very clear that this was a key component to Jesus's human life on earth and his earthly ministry. A key component. Luke emphasizes the humanity of Jesus more than all the other gospel writers, Dr. Luke does, and Luke repeatedly emphasizes the prayer life of our Lord Jesus, that he often would disconnect and spend time with the Heavenly Father in communication. Everything Jesus did overflowed from him spending time with the Heavenly Father. Makes total sense why Jesus always knew what to say. He was always at peace. He was always in control. And he always was able to make the best and the wisest decisions because he was always communicating with the Father. Our Lord's habit in his humanity and his example is something we should aspire towards in our own lives. Again, remember, as we always say, Jesus is someone who we worship as God and who we follow as man. And so we should follow these aspects of the humanity of Jesus and how he had this diligent time of connecting and disconnecting as was necessary to spend time with the Father and one of the best ways, folks, to have a life that is more directed by the Spirit of the Lord is to spend time communicating with the Lord and talking to the Lord. This year ahead, do you want to have a life that's more Spirit-directed, that, hey, I feel like that I'm being directed more by the Spirit of the Lord? One of the best ways to do that is spend time with the Lord. Seek the Lord. And out of that, you'll find that often you'll be much more directed clearly as you've been talking and been in communication with him. So Jesus now goes to this elevated location, spends time praying, and understand from that higher location, the way the Sea of Galilee is located, kind of down in a bowl, Jesus also can kind of somewhat keep his eye and watch what's going on with the disciples as he's up there praying. In fact, and this perhaps is a little bit of speculation, I don't know, but it says Jesus is praying. He sent them out there. It's not like he's unaware of it. It's very likely he's watching them and praying for them as they go through those things. And he's perhaps talking to the Father. Father, I can, I can tell what they're going through is, is going to be difficult for them. And they're going to wonder where I'm at. And they're going to say, why are we out here all alone? 
Where's the Lord? Why are we going through this? This is difficult and hard. And, and Father, strengthen their faith. They're going to need faith, Father, because soon I'm coming back home to you. And they're not even going to see me anymore. And they're going to have to live completely by faith and completely without my presence physically being with them. And perhaps he was talking to the Father, knowing his individual disciples. Father, help Peter not to say something dumb tonight. I don't know. You know, Just imagine he's, he knows his disciples and, and what they're going through. And perhaps he's watching and specifically praying as he sees them out there straining in the midst of this storm, trying to see their spiritual life be helped and benefited and grow. It tells us, verse 47, as the account goes on, now when evening had come, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he, Jesus, was still alone on the land, and he saw them, notice, tells us right there, he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. So just like we saw back in chapter 4, the disciples now encounter another storm. This isn't the first time out on the Sea of Galilee. Now remember from Mark 4, around verse 35 through 41 is when that passage tells us of the storm. When that prior storm happened, you remember the difference? Jesus was what? Out in the storm with them. Remember, he was on board with them, and they go and wake him up when the storm happens. They say, Lord, don't you care? We're drowning out here. We're going to perish. And Jesus wakes up, and he calms the storm. This time, Jesus sends them out into the Sea of Galilee alone, and he directly instructs them to go. Yet the different thing is, now what? They're all alone. He's not on board the boat with them physically. He went up into the mountain and pray. If you would, folks, this is Storm 102. They passed Storm 101, navigating the storm with Jesus right there in the boat, run to him, beg him to help. This is Storm 102, trusting the Lord when you can't see him. Trusting the Lord when you don't sense his presence at all. This is Storm 102. And once again, they find themselves the dark of night, they're in the middle of the sea, a bad storm arises, clearly they're struggling through the storm, having severe difficulty. Verse 48 describes it saying that Jesus saw them straining, agonizo, or agony, straining at the rowing, for the wind was against them. So the boat is storm-tossed, they're straining to keep rowing, to keep the boat afloat, as well as to keep it moving in the direction and the picture here is they're rowing against the wind or going into the wind on top of being in the middle of a storm. And anyone, again, if you've ever tried to you know, run into the wind or bike into the wind or maybe you've rowed into the wind, you know that whenever the wind is against you or you play a sports game and, and, and the wind's blowing a certain way and depending upon what side you are, you're going into the wind, you know, it is much, much harder and much more exhausting when you're going into the wind. And this is going on for hours out here. And they're straining and trying to persevere. They're weary. They're struggling. You know they're starting to lose heart. They're getting discouraged. They're running out of their own resources in their exhaustion to press on, feeling hopeless. And look, maybe this morning, to some degree or recently, you've come into stormy waters. And maybe like the disciples here in the midst of the storm, the strong winds of resistance have been blowing against you in some way, and it has been a very hard struggle just to stay afloat 
Or maybe it seems that it's extremely difficult to even keep going and you're straining like the disciples just to keep moving forward. And it is taking everything in you just to keep straining to go forward, to keep going in the direction that you know that you should. And you are tired and weary and discouraged and maybe even at the end of your ability and resources. This is what the disciples were going through. And the disciples find themselves now in the midst of this, remember, knowing they were strongly instructed by Jesus to go out there. Now, I picture the disciples, they're human beings just like you and I. As they're going through this, they have got to be in their humanity because they're just like us, wondering what does all this mean? Now, maybe I just struggle with these things, so bear with me for a moment, but perhaps they're wondering if Jesus is angry with them or upset. I could totally see how they're thinking to themselves, yeah, that's, man, remember that bad attitude we had there when we were like, send the people away, Lord. And he's like, send them away. How selfish. You give them something. Then he does the whole miracle and they see that he's compassionate and he cares about people and they kind of feel a little guilt-ridden as they're helping and serving. And maybe they're thinking, that's what it is. He's, he's upset with us. Here's our, this is our spanking. I, we, we knew we should see that bad attitude. And now, now the Lord's getting us. And I know you've never done that before. That's why this is going on. That's why this is hard, or that's why this difficulty, or that's why this hardship. And, and God forbid, sadly, maybe somebody was even blasphemous enough to tell you that's why you're going through something. Oh, there's some sin in your life. That's why you're going through that. You don't have enough faith. That's why you're going through that. And Christians and sometimes could be some of the worst counselors in the midst of such times. The Lord wasn't angry at them. The Lord told them to go out there. He sent them out there. This isn't Jesus punishing them, but sometimes we assume the Lord's angry, or maybe the opposite was going on. Maybe they were actually themselves feeling angry that the Lord let them go through the hardship in the storm. Perhaps they're out in the middle of the storm thinking, after we gave up part of our rest time and nicely served all those people and did all those kind things and, and humbled ourselves, he stays behind on the comfy shore and he sends us out here in the middle of a storm. I mean, here we try and be sacrificial. We do what Jesus asks. We follow the Lord and this is what we get? These are the circumstances that become our lot in our situation? And maybe they got a little hostile towards the Lord. And we're almost frustrated and angry that the Lord would allow them to go through that. And we're somewhat angry at him. Now, again, I know you've never done that. I know that's never a human tendency, right? But the disciples, likely, potentially like us, were maybe doing that. Sometimes we get offended and hostile when we endure hardships, and we almost start wondering why the Lord could do such a thing. And we almost get angry at him and somewhat upset with the Lord. This is what I get for following the Lord. The reality is Jesus was fully aware of what they were going through. He saw what they were enduring. He saw that they were struggling through the storm. He was fully conscious of everything going on, and he was still in complete control. Were the circumstances a little out of control? Yes, no one's diminishing that. But Jesus was fully in control, and even more than that, he saw them, it tells us, 
He was aware of things and he was praying for them as they were navigating through this. And this storm and struggle was being permitted, yes, for the purposes of things like growth and development and increased spiritual understanding of the Lord. But it was not Jesus being angered or upset with them. Folks, we have to remember, just if I could say this before I move on, we live in a fallen, broken world due to the effects of sin. And because of that, human hardship and stormy waters and struggles happen in this life in many, 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 many different forms. In all of our lives, you were having hardships before you were a Christian. All of us in life go through different forms of trials and challenges and hardships and tragedies, and human suffering and struggles is part of earthly journey on this planet. And let me just say something. We really have to be wise sometimes, even in our hyper-spirituality as Christians, that we don't always read into every hardship. I'm going through a hardship, and, and sometimes we almost overly want to read into every hardship something divine and hyper-spiritual, the reality is people who don't know God are all going through hardships. And there's no, perhaps, spiritual connection to it at all. They don't even think about that. They just know that earth's hard. So be careful sometimes that you don't create undue additional struggle in your life as a Christian by overly reading too far into things. Here's the good news. The one thing is we know the wonderful reality for those of us who follow the Lord is for us, we know God uses our hardships and that God doesn't let a trial or a hardship or a tragedy just be a miserable, wasted experience if you're a Christian, that God at least redeems it with some valuable way in our life and he uses it for some beneficial thing as miserable or hard as the earthly journey can become. James 1 says, whenever you face trials of many kinds, no, be encouraged that at least the testing of your faith produces perseverance in your life, endurance, which we all need as people on this earthly journey. It tells us in Matthew, or Romans chapter 5, our earthly troubles produce perseverance, and perseverance produces character, greater depths of character. In Romans 8, 28, we all know it and love it if we love God. It's only a promise for those who do love God. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose, we know that all things God somehow can work for the good in some way. What that means, that's God's prerogative. But somehow we can know that God will take everything in life and utilize it for some good purpose ultimately. The disciples obeyed Jesus and their life got worse. Their life got harder. And they weren't outside of God's will. They were in the center of God's will, not just in the middle of the storm. They were in the center of God's will. And sometimes, this is a great encouragement, when you and I follow the Lord, or maybe you obey the Lord to do something, things might actually get harder circumstantially. You may choose to follow Jesus when he tells you to do something, and it may make your life harder. And that's an okay thing sometimes. And here, they're out in the middle of this storm, alone for hours struggling in the waters. Look at verse 48, goes on to tell us, then as he saw them straining and throwing for the wind against them about the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, verse 49, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately 
He then talked with them and said, be of good cheer, be encouraged, the language is. It is I, I'm in this, do not be afraid. So Jesus being in full control, notice, determines the perfect timing for his intervention. And boy, that's the challenging part for me all the time. I know the perfect timing for intervention. The Lord always seems like he's kind of running behind on that. But the reality is the the Lord has different timetables than us, and that's a faith issue sometimes. He's never late. He's oh, and he determines the time. He's right on time from his perspective. He intervenes, enters into this difficult situation now, showing how the hardship can be used even to help them. And notice some of what unfolds. One thing I would draw your attention to in verses 48 to 50 is, is notice very clearly how we might say Jesus showed up in the storm. Jesus shows up in the storm, right? He comes to them walking on the sea. It says they saw him, and then he reveals himself to them in a very powerful way and speaks into their lives. Jesus enters into the hardship that they're going through, and he makes himself fully available to help them to navigate through the hardship. Now, what's somewhat unique in some of the language here, it tells us in verse 48 there, that he comes walking on the water, and he would have passed them by. And we kind of scratch our heads at that. The New American Standard translates that he intended to pass them by, almost seems intended to pass by in their view. Now, the best I can grasp from that, it says he intended to pass them by, and they saw him. The idea is it seems almost like the Lord was passing by them, and he was intending to walk by with the expectation that they would have been looking for him. It almost seems to me that Jesus was hoping that they would have been looking for him in the storm. The idea being, best case scenario, that after the prior storm they had gone through and everything they saw about Jesus afar, that they would have been saying, the Lord's going to show up soon. I mean, he always shows up. Boys, just hang in there. Keep rowing. Keep ro- He's going to show up soon. Keep an eye out. And he's almost maybe hoping that they would have been looking for him Regardless of whether they ended up doing that well or not, he ultimately intervenes where they see him right in the middle of the storm. Jesus shows up faithfully like he always shows up faithfully in the midst of stormy waters and hard times. And look, folks, by way of application for us, during our storms in life, in the same way, Jesus will always show up in your life. How he does it, the ways that he does it, it's unique to each situation, but I can tell you this, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. When you're facing a difficult situation, be looking for the Lord. He will show up somehow. Look for the Lord. Be looking for the Lord. He will show up somehow, and he'll reveal himself to you personally, and he'll make himself available to you personally. He's not going to leave you abandoned. He's not going to leave you alone. He's aware of the struggle. He sees the hardship, and he's in control, and he will show up and intervene to help. Notice when the Lord shows up, unfortunately, it tells us there, it says that it was at the fourth watch of the night, it tells us there in verse 48. Now, that's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., of course, in the latest hour possible. In the darkest hour of the night, after a long period of struggle, they're at the end of their human reserves. 
Jesus shows up. And how did he show up? It tells us that when he came to them, that he came to them walking on the sea. Again, verse 49, and they saw him walking on the sea. Notice two times the Holy Spirit emphasizes for our awareness, Jesus didn't just show up out there. He showed up walking on the sea, which on top of being a sea is a very stormy sea at this time. <laughs> and he comes walking on the water to them, this present storm. And please take note that the difficult storm that was against them, causing them to struggle with, if you would, waves that were over their head, all of that was under Jesus's feet. As something is totally over their head and outside of their under control, uh, their control, Jesus demonstrates as the Lord of authority and in total control, everything they can't handle is totally underneath his feet in full submission. He's walking over top of it all. And to him, it is nothing of any concern at all. However bad or scary or difficult our storms may be, it may feel like sometimes things are over your head. You can always be encouraged. Whatever seems like is over your head it's still under the feet of your Lord. And he can walk over it and he can carry you through it. Everything is under his authority. Nothing at all is outside of his control. And then Jesus speaks to them as they find themselves exhausted and overwhelmed in this crisis moment. It tells us here that supposing that he was a ghost, they cried out at first. Now, to me, that's interesting. Supposing that they were seeing, is that a ghost? What is that? They, they, they can't quite see the Lord clearly at that moment. And to me, it's a beautiful reminder of the fact that, think about it, they're in the middle of a storm. They're exhausted. They're confused. They are weary. They are overwhelmed. And in the midst of that, the clarity of their thought and vision is a little bit blurred, and they're not making good judgments. They're not seeing the Lord clearly. And sometimes as you and I go through our stormy seas, the same thing is a reality. When we go through stormy seas and hard times because of our hard circumstances and our feelings get involved and our thoughts get all going, and on top of that, we get tired and weary. And sometimes like the disciples, our judgment gets a little bit blurred. And sometimes we're not seeing clearly. And that's an okay part of a reality of being in a storm. And sometimes even our judgment is off about the Lord. They couldn't even see the Lord clearly. And sometimes this is a part of what happens to us because of all the things that we're under. But however, notice what happens. The end of verse 50, Jesus talked with them and said, be of good cheer. It is I do not be afraid. Jesus speaks directly to them now in a way that it's evident that it is him and they hear his voice. And Jesus, in essence, is saying to them in the middle of their storm, you take courage. You take courage. I know this is scary, but I'm right here. I'm right here. And this is completely under my control, and I am with you, and despite how it feels, despite how it looks, I'm involved in this with you. Trust me, I will see you through it. I can't imagine the peace and the comfort that must have brought to their souls to hear the Lord speak to them in such a clear way. And look, in the same way that we should be looking for the Lord to show up, we also should realize in our hard times, we should be listening for the Lord's voice. 
because there are things that he will say if we don't shut him out and we seek and say, Lord, I need to hear from you right now. I need you to speak to me. The Lord will say things to us. Sometimes some of the most profound things we'll ever hear him say come to us in the storms of life. Sometimes it almost necessitates being in difficult, hard places to hear some of the most incredible things from Jesus that we hear in our entire Christian journey, that we hear the Lord speak into us in a way where we know it's his voice saying something that calms us or gives us peace or assurance as he says, do not be afraid, I'm with you in this. Verse 51 then says, and then he went up into the boat to them and the wind cease. So as Jesus is welcomed on board, he brings an instantaneous end to this particular storm now, displaying his authority over the forces of nature once again, bringing calm, because everything must submit to the authority and control of the Lord. And this is why, folks, inviting Jesus on board with us and having the Lord take over when we are struggling through hard circumstances is the absolute best thing that we can do because he alone can solve problems that we'll never be able to fix. He alone can, by his power and his presence, put an end to forces and circumstances that may be causing us to strain and struggle and feel like we're never going to make it. He alone, by his power and presence, can restore calm into our lives to our souls and to our minds and bring back peace in the midst of chaotic times. The other accounts tell us actually that when Jesus came on board, even they instantaneously arrived at the other side somehow. They just instantly, when he got on board, some miraculous thing happened and crunch, they showed up on the other shoreline. Now with that being understood, it makes sense why verse 51 goes on to say, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood, Mark adds, about the loaves because their heart was hardened. So the language, notice, wants to purposely emphasize how surprised the disciples are by all this. They're completely shocked that the Lord just did all that he did, walked on the water, calmed the sea again, the boat, as soon as he gets into it, arrives instantly on the other side, it says they were greatly amazed. It says beyond measure and marveled. We would say their minds were blown. They were just astonished by what they just saw. But notice that Mark adds into his account, verse 52 here, that the reason for that, being so surprised, is they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Now, another translation renders this. They still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves because their hearts were too hard to take it in. J.B. Phillips, who's a Greek uh, translator, said they did not learn the lesson of the loaves. It seems the Holy Spirit's trying to emphasize here that the reason they were so astounded by what all had just happened is that they failed to learn the prior lesson Jesus was trying to teach them in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, that their heart was still somewhat hard in regards to fully believing and trusting in the fullness of the Lord's power and goodness and that he's in complete control of every situation. And because of that, they weren't trusting that and they didn't see what Jesus was trying to reveal. And so now they failed to grasp the full spiritual lesson and that's why they were so shocked 
when they saw Jesus do this, rather than somewhat expecting the Lord to work in this way. Part of the reason Jesus let them pass through the storm, prayed for them through it, again, as I said, maybe asking the Father to strengthen their faith, showed up, spoke to them, revealed himself, did all the miraculous things that he just did here again, was he was trying to further develop their faith, trying to further strengthen them in their awareness of all the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, trying to increase their understanding of the Lord and his ways and his power because this was vital for them. Because, see, that's what would sustain them through the next storm or through the next predicament or situation. And to some degree, the Bible is equating here struggling with unbelief with a heart that is hardened. The idea unyielded to the Lord, where to some degree, we're still trying as human beings to stay in control of everything ourselves, And not realizing that, quite honestly, pretty much everything in life is out of my control. A lot more than I often realize. And that there at times is a hardness of the human heart of not wanting to let Jesus have full control and to properly look to the Lord and trust his power. And sometimes the Lord continues through every event when we miss the first time to try and show it to us again the next time. And so here, they're astonished by what has happened because they weren't seeing how much he's fully in control of all. Verse 53 then tells us, and when they had crossed over, they then came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. Now, remember, they were headed. Jesus told them, get in the boat. Anybody remember and go to where? Bethsaida, right. Now they land at Gennesaret. So they land at a location that's a little bit more southwest. It seems part of the stormy waters they went through had slightly adjusted their destination a little bit. But to me, this is a unique little reminder here. Sometimes if the Lord permits you and I to pass through stormy waters, sometimes in the midst of that process, it may alter our destination a little bit. But the bottom line is, folks, if we learn lessons that are valuable and spiritual, the alteration of our destination a slight bit really isn't that critical. A slight alteration in our destination really is very inconsequential if we've learned more about Jesus and we've grown closer to the Lord and we've ended up experiencing things on a deeper level with the Lord. That's way, way more valuable than a slight alteration, again, in our earthly circumstantial destination. It goes on to tell us in the final account here, notice that they, as the, Jesus arrived there, came out of verse 54 the boat, and immediately all the people recognized Jesus. Again, his fame, his popularity, as we've been seeing, is spreading tremendously at this time in the peak of his ministry. So everyone recognizes it's the Lord again. Verse 55 says, they ran through the whole surrounding region, that is that Decapolis region around the area there of the sea, and they began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard that Jesus was. And wherever Jesus entered, verse 56 into villages, into cities, or into the country, rural locations. They laid the sick in marketplaces, and they begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. So as Jesus shows up now in another location, ministry picks right back up as it always does, 
and notice whether he was in a countryside area, a city location, whatever, this was common practice that people were bringing the sick to Jesus, carrying people to the Lord. And it tells us there in verse 56, look, it says, they were begging Jesus that the people might just be able to touch the hem of his garment. Now we know from Numbers 15, the hem of a Jew's garment was a blue tassel, which they were to wear as a symbolic reminder of God's word and God's promises. And God tells us in Exodus 15, 26, the Lord declares, I am the Lord who heals you. This is why the woman in chapter five, remember with the 12 year hemorrhaging, the blood issue, remember she wanted to touch the hem, the tassel of Jesus's garment saying expectantly, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. And she was miraculously healed. And this is why here again, if we could just touch the hem of his garment, it's the reminder that the Lord is a God who, if it's a part of his will, has the power to heal lives, to cure people, to resolve problems, that he has the potential and the power to do that if it's within his will and his purposes. And many were coming to Jesus, and it tells us here in verse 56, as many as touched him were made well. So many were coming him with great expectancy and many were being made whole and cured. This amazing record shows us there was no limitation on who Jesus would help and who he would not help. It says, as many as came to him were made well. He didn't preclude anyone from receiving help. He didn't stereotype, well, I'll help you, but not help you. Nor was there any limitation depending upon a person's condition. Well, I can help you in your condition, but I can't help you in that condition. All of them were expectantly coming to Jesus in faith, and whoever was connecting with the Lord, he was able to make them well. Look, folks, that should be an incredible encouragement to all of us to go to Jesus and to beg and plead with Jesus, trusting that he has the power to make us well. Whether it's a physical health issue, whether it's a mental health issue, whether it's an emotional traumatic scar or thing in your life that needs to be healed, which sometimes is way harder to heal than a physical health issue, whether it's a spiritual struggle, whatever it may be for ourselves and others, we need to connect with Jesus. Lord, only you have the power to heal me, but Lord, I believe you can. And I'm asking, Lord, Make me whole. Heal me, Lord. Heal my body. Heal my broken heart. Heal my life, Lord. Heal my mind. Heal me of this struggle, Lord, that's plagued me for years. And the wonderful thing is that our Lord has the power to do that. And let me make one observation before we pray, and that's this. If you remember back in chapter 5, when Jesus healed the demoniac, and the demoniac man said, Lord, I want to come with you, because his life had been transformed by Jesus. And you remember what Jesus said to him? Jesus did not permit him to go, but he said, go home to your friends, tell them what great things the Lord's done for you and how he's had compassion on you. And when the man departed, he proclaimed in Decapolis, all that region that Jesus is now in, what Jesus had done for him and many people marveled. Here's why I bring this to your attention as you see all these multitudes being helped and healed by Jesus. Because that man let Jesus be in control, all these people in that whole region that are now being helped by Jesus who rejected Jesus the first time, 
they got a second chance. Because one man listened to Jesus and said, Jesus, I want to do this, but I'll let you be in control. It's always best to let Jesus be in control.